You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 100. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about conservation and wildlife. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky, and today is our 100th show. It's been two years since we launched this podcast, and it's amazing to me that we have already released close to 100 interviews. This podcast began as an experiment, but it has moved well beyond that to become a central hub of the internet for folks who are interested in conservation. We've interviewed biologists, researchers, filmmakers, activists, artists, politicians, musicians, authors, educators, chefs, entrepreneurs, all of whom are involved with conservation in some way. Now, today's show is special, not just because we are celebrating 100 episodes, but because we are introducing two new contributors to the show. Serena Simons and Courtney Ray will be helping us expand the scope of Eyes on Conservation. No longer will you be hearing solely my voice here on the show, but the voices of Courtney and Serena, as well as EOC producer Sean Bogle. In today's discussion, we will be talking about the future direction of this show and sharing our perspectives on the current state of the conservation movement. Let's jump in. My name is Serena Simons, and I am a new contributor here uh, with Wildlands, and um, I will be working and editing future podcasts with you guys, and I'm really excited about it. Um, I have a background in documentary filmmaking, and so that's where um, I guess my my heart really lies, but I, I've kind of this year recently delved into podcasts and I listen to podcasts all the time now. And so I'm, I'm really excited to see where this podcast goes and to get other people excited about it too. My name's Courtney Ray. I have been a follower of Wild Lens and Eyes on Conservation since the beginning. So I'm excited to help with this project. I'll be working out of Portland, Oregon um, and I work in the conservation community here, which I think is changing a lot. And so I'm excited to be able to investigate that more and share those stories uh, through the podcast. My name is Sean Bogle, and uh, I have a background in field biology. And I'm also a filmmaker. And I'm currently the project director of the Eisen Conservation web series. Thanks, guys. Um, my name is Matt Podolsky. All you folks who listen to the show are probably used to hearing my voice at this point. I had this crazy idea about two years ago to, to launch a podcast, um, which was something I had no experience in and knew nothing about. But it's been a really amazing learning process. And uh, I think the show has come a really long ways in the last two years. It's super embarrassing at this point to go back and listen to some of the early episodes. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about how far this show has come. Um, but I'm also really excited about like the future of it and, and, and what we can do moving forward. And I think there's a lot of potential. And I'm really excited to have a group of folks to throw ideas off of and to go out and like somewhat independently, like seek out people that they want to interview and stories that they want to tell. And I guess I'll just say for folks who don't know that, you know, I also, like Sean, have a background in both field biology and, and, and filmmaking. 
Sean and I have been involved producing films together for Wildlands for, what, four years now? Yeah. So up until this point, the, the EOC podcast has been a project that is primarily a personal undertaking for me. You know, I seek out interview candidates, I edit the content, I record the, you know, these introductions to, to the show, um, and then deal with the logistics of publishing the content, publishing each show on goes out to iTunes and all these other platforms. We've started to feature uh, interviews that, that Sean um, has, has gone out and conducted but, I mean, up until this point, it's mostly been my voice that listeners have been hearing. But that's not the way I want it to be. I want there to be a diversity of perspectives. So this is our 100th episode, and I thought that we would celebrate that by introducing our new team of podcast contributors, which we all just did. Um, so, I mean, moving forward on the show, uh, folks who listen are going to be hearing not just interviews that, that I conduct and that Sean conducts, but... Um, also interviews from Serena and, and Courtney. Um, so the main purpose of this discussion is just to get a sense of the types of interviews that all of us are going to be seeking out. And, you know, the name of the show is, is Eyes on Conservation. Most people probably when they hear that or they see that, they think of, oh, this is a niche topic, right? This is a niche show. But like from my perspective, uh, there's actually a vast range of, of issues and topics that, that can fall under this, this umbrella of conservation. So, I mean, I want to hear about what interests each of you most within this scope, uh, within the scope of this topic of conservation. Um, and as a starting point, I thought it might make sense to just get a little bit of background um, on, on each of us, um, sort of trace this interest that all of us have in conservation and the environment back to its source. So again, I'm going to stick with this order. Uh, so I'll go to you first, Serena. Um, <laughs> where, like, I mean, where? I don't like this order. <laughs> like, can we uh, can we trace your your interest in conservation and, and environmental topics like back to its source? I would say yes. Um, <laughs> trying to think back, um, I, I've been I've been interested in in film for a really long time, and I, I would say in the last maybe four years, maybe five years, um, I've become more and more interested in in documentary filmmaking. So you know, um, kind of that nonfiction element, and um, I, the the first shock that I had with documentary filmmaking was um, volunteering on a project with a women a women's shelter in in Los Angeles on Skid Row and just I mean seeing how almost post-apocalyptic that place was um, and and wanting to hear how these women were living and 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 all that and so that was kind of my my wake up call to documentary um, but I think in terms of conservation um, my my biggest interest um, kind of lies with social justice issues too. So I think oftentimes those two things, so environmentalism or conservation, um, as well as social justice issues are really linked to, together. Um, as we can see, uh, with Standing Rock right now, um, I worked on a, a Native American reservation on the East Coast, and a lot of issues that they are facing are ties to their land and ties to uh, basically the, the environment on their reservation and issues with water. A lot of them don't have access to clean water. So um, those kinds of things are where my my biggest interest interests lie. But um, I've always had a passion for wildlife and, um, you know, treating... Uh, give, basically just giving a, a voice to people and to, you know, things, animals, trees that, that don't have a voice and um, using film and documentary to give them a voice that way. That really, I mean, gets to the heart of like 
the, the direction that, that I hope we can go moving forward, which is making connections, right? Um, so that this show, I mean, it's sort of, uh, like, I want to show people how how big this umbrella of conservation is, right? And all the Absolutely. connections that exist, you know, between different topics and how, like, conservation is really tied into to, to, to really everything. So how about you, Courtney? Um, I'm trying to go back really as far as I can remember. And to tell that story, I guess the first thing to know is that I grew up really poor. And the cheapest way to spend a summer is to go camping. And so my family would go camping for weeks or months, sometimes uh, just my, my mom and my brothers and I, sometimes a much bigger selection of our family. And we would spend the whole summer in some national park or state park. Uh, I saw my first black bear when I was probably seven or eight, it came into our campground during breakfast and definitely wanted the pancakes and all this food that we were making. Uh, and I just remember that moment being and realizing that like I could, I had access in this way. Not that I thought of it as that as a child, but that the world that I was included in included bears showing up to breakfast uh, at my family reunion. And that I think was the moment that I really started to care about the natural world and wildlife in particular, that has definitely developed a lot over the years. And I have a much more kind of political and academic uh, perspective <laughs> to talk about it now. Um, but I think originally it's kind of in my sense of identity that a bear is literally welcome at my breakfast uh, with my family in on our summer vacations. And that is something that I think a lot of people who grew up in America can understand, whereas we don't, you know, talk about that as part of our, uh, who we say we are. It is something that's, um, that is, that, you know, it is within reach for all of us, kind of regardless of our socioeconomic position in the world. Um, so that's, yeah, that's kind of what I always go back to, is just sharing the space with with wildlife, for example, but sharing it with everyone as it should be. That's awesome. I love that story. And I don't know if like your experience is, is really unique or not, but um, it's definitely interesting to hear that, like, you know, for your family, like that was a place where you guys could go to maybe escape or but but to have like uh, this amazing experience with with the natural world. Sean, what do you think? The background that you guys have offered is completely different from like where I would be coming from. Uh, I, I I don't have I never had a a uh, a direct line of sight as to where I would be now. I grew up mostly um, in Europe because my I, my mother's German and uh, but I also have family uh, in Texas, so I was always ping ponging back and forth. And so the one you know I said earlier that one of the other backgrounds I have is in field biology. So I've been working in the wildlife sciences for over 10 years now with a variety of species all around the world. And um, I've been documenting every one of those projects uh, with no intent of, 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 or should I say no purpose of doing anything except for just, just archiving um, in hopes that maybe, maybe one day they would be utilized somehow. But I, I, I never thought beyond that. I just, I love cameras and to be able to document stuff and then go back and reflect. There's a lot of things that you see that you you didn't maybe see 
um, while you're actually shooting. But when I discovered wide lens and saw the potential, um, you know, right time, right place kind of a thing, the idea of taking a lot of that archive footage and then shooting fresh stuff um, made me make the connection of like, I love outdoors and I love film. And this is the best way to um, be able to experience both of those. And then the idea behind this is sharing that experience with other people to not only appreciate film, but to appreciate the outdoors. But then, you know, also because I work with a variety of sensitive species in these like very remote locations on issues that honestly nobody really knows about or would they know how to learn about it? I thought it was my responsibility based on what I know and my skill set that what I should be doing is taking that information and working with like-minded people to be able to uh, document and project that information so that other people can be a part of it. I ask this question of, of a lot of the guests that, that come on the show of like, you know, where does, what, what's the seed of like your interest in, in, um, in conservation generally, or in this particular topic that you're, you know, focused on. Um, and right. Like some people have like a specific moment where they're like, this is the, you know, I have this childhood memory and like, this is where it all comes from. Um, and some people are like Sean and it's like, I don't know, like it, this just, you know, this pathway through life and I just followed it and here I am. Right. Um, but I mean, Sean, like you took that to a really interesting place, which is, it, it sort of begs this question of like, how, how did we end up where we are? Right. And like, was there, you know, if, if we look back on, um, these experiences that we've had, like, is there a moment when we can say like, I have like you know, when something, something clicks, right. And all these pieces sort of fall into place, whether that is intentional or or not. Right. Um, and so that's kind of my next question. I mean, Sean, you just kind of dived right into that, um, without me prompting you, but I mean, Serena, like, you know, sort of moving forward from what you said previously, I mean, like, is there a moment where it seems like, you know, your multiple interests sort of came together and things started to, to click or to make more sense for you? Yeah, well, I think Sean brought up a really good point. Um, I I have kind of a similar a similar attitude, uh, I guess, on life is the the idea of the nine to five is just so terrifying to me, and I I just my brain does not work that way. I can't do that, and to be to be locked into a job where I I would feel like I wasn't contributing to, you know, quote unquote, the greater good for, for people, for species, for the planet, that to me just seems like such a, such a waste of, um, of, of potential. So that was kind of my, my driving force in, uh, in, you know, in this kind of field, because I, I've always, wanted to give back in whatever way I can. And, and I've, you know, I've been interested in film for a really long time. And I've also been interested in conservation and biology and science. But, um, you know, growing up, I never really thought I was smart enough to, um, you know, to pursue the sciences. So when I graduated high school, and I went to college, I, you know, even though I was highly interested in biology or zoology or forestry, you know, all kinds of things to do in the sciences, I didn't have the confidence um, uh, with my science background, I didn't think that I'd be able to do that. So um, 
I was able to kind of meld my two interests, you know, science and filmmaking through, uh, you know, wildlife documentary and wildlife photography. And um, so I, I think, yeah, I think it kind of converged when I when I graduated high school and was trying to figure out, you know, what to do in college. And then after I graduated college, I think I have a, a more focused idea of exactly what I want to do. Um, but yeah, I think it was, it was then when it, when it all kind of clicked for me. And uh, that's not to say that I have my life totally figured out. I have no idea what the hell I'm doing, but, um, but I, I, you know, I have, I have a sense of where I, I want to go, you know, from here. There are a lot of parallels that I have in, in what you experienced, right? Like the shared interest in filmmaking and, and also conservation and like, you know, studying both of those things through school. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it took me a long time to sort of figure out a way to like blend those two things together. But at this point, you know, I'm five years into like starting this nonprofit and like combining all these interests. And every time I meet somebody, you're like, oh, you like found a way to like bring these two interests together. Like how cool. And like, yeah, it's pretty cool. But like, you know, I'd like to be earning a more steady income doing this. Right. Like, or, right. Yeah. <laughs> so know. that's another good point. I think this this I'm going to speak for everyone on this, but in, in our line of work, you know, be it filmmaking or in the sciences, conservation, a nonprofit sector, we're all doing this because we love it and because we care about um, the, the things that we're trying to empower. We, we're not doing it uh, for a steady job or for the money because there's really not a lot of money in, in our line of work. So it's, it's the passion. So meeting you, people like you guys, um, that's what's another thing that's really um, helped me out a lot is meeting like-minded people that are passionate and really care and feeding off of that energy is so important. Courtney, what do you think? Any... What was the question again? So the, que- <laughs> <laughs> the question is like, if there's like a moment when things started to click or like interests that you had like sort of started to come together that sort of presented me, I don't know, maybe like a more clear mission of like how these interests could sort of combine to like accomplish something. I would say I started working in environmentalism uh, because I wanted to save the planet, just like your typical idealistic like save the planet mentality. But the longer that I've been in this part of the world, I guess, in this amongst this community, I, I am definitely feeling like I can zero in a little bit more. And that's kind of around a realization that I'm getting that, you know, decisions that are made about, about conservation, about public lands, about uh, access and all these kind of the modern iteration of the conservation movement is not what I thought I was getting into when I decided I was going to be like a professional environmentalist. Um, And so I'm very interested now in unpacking the idea that people, that there's a real value to human life, to the quality of someone's life, if they are able to connect with, the place that they live with the ecosystem and the natural processes in the place that they live and that people don't always know that they don't know what, how that could make their life better, uh, more healthful, less stressful and all kinds of, all kinds of things open up um, opportunities for them to meet people and get involved in things that they may have thought they weren't prepared to do. And I think I'm finding that more and more reaching out to people who don't have 
a background in it who are kind of unaware of what opportunity there is for them and for for them to be a part of something and for them just personally to have a, a better quality of life is it's that is becoming my focus more and that's very that's very recent uh, I think in the past I was happy to kind of jump on board with your standard uh, conservationist mentality of just you know protect it like get it set aside make sure nobody you know make sure no harm comes to it and kind of tuck it away for the people who who like to go there and I'm realizing that that's totally not good enough and that we actually need to do a lot of work to connect people to those places and not to create isolation and that I, I, I consider that kind of the historic motivation for the conservation movement is kind of to keep keep it aside. And I really think we need to integrate it, integrate people's modern lives with the natural world. I mean, it's a weird way to describe it, but that is, it's kind of an amorphous goal, I guess. But to me, it, it feels a lot more focused than my initial starting point of just, you know, just save the planet or save the environment. So I'm, I, I feel like there's a lot of opportunity around this lately. Um, and ideally, we'll be able to, like, mature the movement is kind of how I think of it, um, to be more inclusive and uh, really thinking about what it's going to be like in the future rather than thinking about how can we keep it like we imagine it was in the past. Um, so that's an important kind of concept to me right now, for sure. I'm really stoked that you brought up those points because, I mean, th those are ideas that I've been like fixated on, right? For, I mean, for, for a number of years. And, and I, I, I guess my struggle has been like finding the appropriate way to convey that type of messaging. The idea that the natural world or, you know, ecosystems, wildlife are not separate from humanity at all. And in fact, humankind is... A, a functioning member of every ecosystem on the planet. Like we are a keystone species in virtually every single ecosystem on the planet. And like, until we recognize that and we recognize, you know, our, our ability, not even our ability, but I mean, it's, it's happening whether or not we are um, intending for it to happen. But I, I think the recognition of that is severely lacking in our society and, you know, I don't, I don't know, like what the best way to increase awareness of that. I mean, or, or or to get that main point across. But I mean, that that's a big part of like I think you know the the, the future direction that I'm hoping this this podcast will go is like I mean, like you said, Courtney, like I want to reach people who are not like your typical environmentalists. Like I want to branch away from the sort of I mean, like hey, all you environmentalists who are listening now, like. I love you and you should keep listening to the show. But like we, we want to bring more people into the fold and we want people to recognize like this point that I made at the outset, which is that, you know, conservation is about everything, right? I mean, it's not just about preserving pristine, untouched wilderness in some corner of the globe. Like it's integrated with all these other topics and like people play a central role in, in, in every single aspect of that. Really, we're all environmentalists. It's just what environment are we actually caring about, um, whether it involves the natural world or the man-made world. And so for the most part, when you hear about messaging that's currently going out, um, it always seems like it's like man versus nature, us versus it. 
You know, it's like you've got some spe- some people that acknowledge, okay, the planet is important for our, our own personal survival. And so they bring to light the information as such as um, sensitive species or sensitive habitat that is is being damaged and is potential for, for going extinct, which thus we rely on. But nobody has the foresight to be able to know exactly how that is going to look. And then those people that are not thinking like that, okay, so the people that are, you know, yeah, they go camping and yeah, they go fishing and they breathe air and they plant gardens. But a lot of those people are not connected at all, right? It's Those are just tasks that they do in those environments, but there's no actual like intrinsic connection, which we all have. There has to be levels of messaging if we're going to reach more people. There is no one method that is just going to fix all of this. And I think by having more of us involved in brainstorming and adapting, I think that's where we're going to have the greatest impact. I guess sort of like where that takes me is we stand at this moment in history that is not a particularly happy time to be involved in conservation, right? I mean, the planet, our species, many other species face numerous threats. At this point, it seems inevitable to me that that the planet and our society will be undergoing some extraordinarily dramatic changes uh, within our lifetime. So, I mean, like, what are, are we are we just like banging our heads up against a wall? Like, why work in this field? <laughs> right. Like what what like what is it about us that drives you to to continue doing this type of work despite this apparently dire situation that we're in it just seems like there isn't really a choice for me i think that kind of like what serena was saying before you know working a nine to five i work a nine to five but i spend all of that time trying to understand you know what people need to be able to engage with the earth in the natural systems in a way that's that provides for them and that protects for I still want to save the planet you know I'm still the same like eight-year-old that like loved PBS because every program on there was about animals from all over the world and and then it was Captain Planet and it was like you need to do this you know (laughs) and I really think that I don't think I'm technically a millennial, but I'm really close. And there is a huge amount of information sharing that is got to be absolutely vital to making, I don't care what kind of messaging you end up with, um, move fast enough to ignite changes on, on the pace that we actually need them to happen. You know, we need to have incremental changes, obviously, but they need to be happening kind of concurrently around the planet. And the only way that that's going to happen is through technology. So I'm in no way a Luddite about how important uh, it is that we connect with, with technology. We're not, it's not, we're not going back. That's for sure. Um, I mean, maybe there's a solar flare or something. We might have to go back, but to me, it's like the, you know, the momentum of humanity is going as it always has. It's accelerating in ways that, seem to be leaving certain aspects of our biological reality behind. And the reason that's happening is because people are being 
um, they're being supported by systems and by mechanisms that purposely isolate them from the planet, you know, from the sources of their water and even sometimes of the air that they're breathing. So, you know, I'm not, I don't, I don't, I feel almost trapped by the problem, you know, that if I'm going to save the planet, which is still my main goal, (laughs) then I'm going to have to address where people are. Um, The majority of people on the planet are in a situation where it is a struggle for them to go day to day. And if we're going to engage humanity in the cause, then we have to find solutions that start there, you know, and I think that's going to take a a really big uh, change in philosophy and praxis throughout the, the, the conservation movement. Um, I'm ready for the old, old hat to just go hang on the wall (laughs) and let the new, then, you know, let some fresh air into the movement so that we can find solutions that actually serve people as well. Because, you know, as Matt said, and every ecosystem, the people are a keystone species. So if we're not starting with what do people need, then how are we pretending to be solving the problems? Sean, both you and Courtney brought up the importance of technology and, and like the role that, that this needs to and will play in finding solutions to all of these problems that, that we face. My hope is that we can at least make, you know, some small difference with this podcast series as sort of like a final thought. If anyone, if any of you have like thoughts or hopes about like what we could realistically accomplish with a podcast series where we go out and interview people. What I, what I'm interested in, if I could contribute something is like, you know, traditionally the way that this has been working is, you know, these interviews happen online. I'd like for some of these to be a little more gritty. I want to hear those imperfections from people out, whether, you know, on the street, in the field, um, and just ask them these questions about these topics, whether it's specific to their immediate environment or just their opinion of, you know, the the planet as a whole, those perspectives where they maybe aren't so intimidating and may appeal to the colloquial person, you know, where they're not researchers, they're not filmmakers, they're just people. Um, I would like to talk to somebody who has that nine to five job and who works day in and day out. And, you know, we don't know why they're there. Maybe maybe they wanted to be one of these things or maybe um, they're not any of those things, but they are environmentally conscious. I mean, we need to capture the different types of people and the different levels of involvement, if any, um, in conservation. One of the things for me, and I would say maybe it was just one of these like these O moments light bulb of sorts there was a a child that feared you know insects which a lot of kids do right the yucky ooh, gross watch out it bites you know bees spiders you name it and there was a moment where i was walking with this child and they wanted to step on this this bee because they were threatened by it and they heard about like a bee sting and i simply picked up the bee and I held it in my hand and I just simply explained like when bees are threatened, they, they will sting, but you got to realize it comes with a price and it's suicide for them. And once I explained that, I mean, it was no more than just a couple sentences. 
Um, she put it in her hand and the comfort was there. She had her friend with her, that young person that I just had explained that to, grabbed the bee and walked up to her friend and regurgitated the exact same information that I just told her to her friend. And her friend then entered that same state of mind of comfort going, oh, now I have that information. I'm not afraid anymore because I understand. And I think a show like what we're doing, we, we may not be able to measure it in downloads. You know, that's downloads is not necessarily impact. We don't really know how much information people are absorbing off these shows. But if it was a moment like that for me, I can only imagine if we're reaching that many more people and if we're bringing a diversity of information that we are having, we're going to have an impact on a lot of, a lot more people. That was the moment for me. And that's how I see this podcast and Wired Lens as a whole, um, as far as like what, what we're doing, because I do feel like we are having a positive impact um, and we are reaching people. You bring up a good point, Sean, which is that you can't necessarily measure your impact just by looking at like the number of people who who download the show, you know, this show, for example, uh, uh, or the number of people that you talk to. Right. I mean, it's 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 the power of that conversation and how effectively you're able to convey the information and and maybe sort of, you know, sparking an, an interest in somebody that they're going to then go and spread around amongst all the folks that they know. That's absolutely what, what I hope is happening and, and, and will continue to happen to a greater extent with this show is that, you know, we engage people and then they you know, subsequently go out and, and spread that information with, with their friends and family. And, and that's the way ideas spread, right? So, I mean, I, I think that's a good point to wrap up this conversation on. I, I think one of the central things that, that all of us, right, but also all the people who are listening out there have to keep in mind is that this is about discussion and, like, we want to create a discussion with this show. We want the folks who listen to the show and who hear these words to give us some feedback and, you know, tell us, like, what do you want to be hearing and, you know, what do you think or feel about these issues? We have a Facebook page for Eyes on Conservation, but I also created a Facebook group that's called the EOC Podcast that is sort of geared specifically towards that type of conversation. So... That is something that I will link to in the show notes for this episode. Please, folks who are listening, like, don't hesitate to let us know what you think. We're paying attention. Thanks to all three of you guys for joining me for this little conversation. It was a lot of fun for, for me to sort of hear about your interests and, and backgrounds, and I'm super excited about um, working with you guys and hearing the interviews that, that you collect um, on the show moving forward. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. And by the way, Serena Cordy, I, I, I want to you know, give you a special shout out and say thank you for wanting to participate and join the team and contribute. I think it's really fantastic. And I, I know that it's going to do really well. And, you know, I'm excited to work with you guys. Yeah, I'm excited to work with all of you guys, too. And thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm so nice to meet you, Courtney. And I think this is going to be really, really awesome, really powerful for all of us. All right. That was our conversation with our new team of EOC podcast contributors, Serena Simons, Courtney Ray and Sean Bogle. I'm really excited at the prospect of expanding the scope of the show and opening the dialogue up to a variety of new perspectives. I'm confident that Courtney, Serena, and Sean will seek out interviews that are engaging and also unique. 
As Courtney said, we are seeking to help mature this movement, and and I believe, I really do believe that this podcast can play an important role in this somewhat daunting but critically important task that we face. As I mentioned in the discussion, listener feedback would be extremely helpful at this stage in our experiment. Let us know what kinds of interviews you want to hear. If you're involved in conservation, tell us what motivates you to keep working in this field. You can join the discussion on our EOC podcast Facebook group. I'll include this link on the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC100. You can also subscribe to this show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, or just about any podcatcher you can think of. Ratings and reviews of the show are really helpful in allowing us to reach more people with this important content, so if you are a true fan of this show, you'll search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store and leave us an honest rating and review. Now, before I sign off, we are going to briefly hear from two more very special guests. Those of you who listen to the show have likely become familiar with the funky beats featured in the intro and outro of the show. These songs were written and recorded by Bay Area funk band The Humidors, and we thought that our 100th episode of the show would present a nice opportunity for a quick chat with a couple of the band members. My name is Ben Corey. Um, I've been living here in the Bay Area now for about six years. Um, I came over for a job and for a girl. I still have both, which is good. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, as soon as I got out here, I was looking for a band. Um, I've been in various bands over the years um, and I was in a funk band for many years in the UK and we always only ever played covers. We never actually wrote any original material. So, um, you know, it was exciting for me to find a band of like-minded people who were looking for a keyboard player who actually wanted to write stuff. Um, so that was almost six years ago now, pretty much, that I joined the band. Um, it's been through a few different iterations since then. I mean, we became the Humidors about two or three years ago, maybe three years ago. Um, and, you know, we've, we've, we've changed lineup a little bit here and there. Um, but, you know, th- this is really the sort of culmination of us being able to uh, serialize, if you want to call it that, you know, to, to put down um, some of the best stuff that, that, you know, I've ever worked on, which is, which is exciting for me. So, um, and I play keyboards in the band. That's, that's my main role. And um, I'm also taking the role of actually coordinating the effort from a recording perspective, from a pre-production perspective, um, just kind of managing the whole thing. I, I am Eric Podolsky. I am uh, Matthew Podolsky's cousin, and I am the bassist and musical director in the Humidors. Uh, I've also been with the band since the beginning. Uh, back in, I think, tw- late 2010, early 2011, we started. And it's really just been an, on an upward trajectory ever since then. The band just keeps getting better. The songs keep getting better. Uh, we've gotten some great gigs lately. We played, we've gotten the opportunity to play with a lot of amazing people. Uh, we've opened for Shuggy Otis and the new Master Sounds, and uh, we got to play open up for, with Bernie Worrell before he passed this year. And this is really this new album that we're trying to get started by Kickstarter is really the culmination of the band up until this point. Uh, we've got this amazing new singer Andre, who's t- just taken everything to another another notch in terms of uh, showcasing the musicianship with some amazing vocals and. Uh, just we're, we're really excited to 
take this band to the next level with this new album. So you're sort of uh, gearing up to, to record this new album, and, and you talked a little bit about the process and, and how you got to that point. Have you written all these songs yet? I mean, are you like ready to, to jump into the studio with this? It's funny because someone actually, um, a friend of mine actually asked me this the other day. She, she was like, well, so, so you're going to be writing the songs now? And I'm just like, no, <laughs> no. Like we've, you know, we, it, it, it's, an, it's, it's funny because it, it's, it's, it's an obvious question to ask. And yet it never even entered my mind that, that, that anyone would think that we were at that stage. Um, so the songs that we have, we've been playing for a while now. We've been playing live. Um, um, and, and that's good because it gives you a chance to, to really feel them out and they evolve a little bit um so we have all the songs and what we're doing right now is we're going through a process of pre-production um which is really uh, you know a, an important process of saying okay well this is how we think these songs sound good live um and typically they're long um you know because in a live setting you can afford to go on a bit um you know as soon as you put them down on a record particularly if you're putting them on vinyl which is what we plan to do um you know if you're going to keep it to a single disc you can't afford to go on you know everything has to be fairly concise um and you know in the tradition of funk you know you get some songs that you know kind of find a groove and just go on and on and on and and that's really cool but oftentimes you know people just kind of get in slam it and then get straight out again um so so part of this process that we're going through right now is figuring out well, you know, just simple things like structure and speed and feel and and you know and and just just getting all of those things right. So it's a process of recording, listening, recording, sitting down, making comments, iterating. Um, and the idea is that once we actually get ready to get in the studio, uh, we'll know exactly what it is that we're doing, and there's going to be no point where we kind of go, ah, oh, you know what, we should have done this or we should have done that, because we'll have you know had the opportunity to work all that stuff out ahead of time. And that also gives us the most bang for our buck in terms of studio time, not having to make waste time in the studio, making important decisions and determining whether we're doing this or that. And uh, it's funny that you asked that, Matt, because we, we consider Ben the quality control of the band, and he's very good at honing in on things and polishing them to a, a sheen. And, you know, a, a lot of us, um, you know, just like to play and, uh, me being music musical director, kind of, I, I do that a little bit as well in terms of determining what sounds good and what, how to tweak things here and there. But uh, the process of this is to all this pre-production before really, I think it's going to help us get a really great product at the end of the day. As soon as we go into the studio, we'll know what we're doing. We're going to bang it out. We're going to know that it sounds good beforehand, and you know we're going to have the right people to just make it blast out the speakers, and it'll be great. <laughs> You guys decided to raise some of the money that you need uh, to to get into the studio and, and to record this album uh, via this Kickstarter campaign. Um, I, I mean, tell me a little bit about the decision making process of you know deciding to launch a crowdsource funding campaign to to record this album. <sighs> Yeah, um, I probably should answer that since I'm in charge of the money. <laughs> it's it's fair to say that we probably, as a band, spend everything that we earn. Um, you know, we have we rent a studio for practicing. 
you know, like a rehearsal space. We um, we buy beer when we practice. I mean, you know, the, if that doesn't sound like a lot of money, it's true. It's not a lot of money that we spend, but then we don't bring in a lot of money. You know, um, at the level that we're at, um, you know, we um, we play for the pleasure of it as much as anything else. Um, but you know, every year so far, we've you know we've managed to pretty much earn everything that we that we spend which is great and that's our goal um we don't though have uh any significant savings at this point and so if we're going to go into the studio which really we've budgeted we've budgeted the re- the actual recording process at around about 7 or 8000 dollars then of course there's the cost of printing vinyl and and you know and maybe uh paying someone to do artwork and and bits and pieces so we're looking at probably 12 13000 dollars in order to 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 have a finished album and you know you 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 look at that and you go well okay are we going to go to a bank and say, please lend us money to, <laughs> to, to record this album? Uh, or, you know, can we, can we go be a bit more, you know, social media and a bit more modern and a bit more kind of get, getting people excited about it. The great thing about Kickstarter is it not only allows you to, um, to potentially fund something, but it also allows you to be very public about the way in which uh, you're doing it and to, to, to get people excited about it, um, to, to, to build a following, to, to, to kind of, to, to get people inspired. Um, so, you know, it ticks so many boxes in terms of us being able to not only fund the album, but also, you know, really get people on board with it. And then to be able to say to them, well, look, you know, you're not just donating money here. You're actually just, just in paying ahead for something that, that actually, you know, will be a really unique thing um, because a lot of the gifts that we have on the Kickstarter will be very limited edition things that, hey, you know, if one day we actually ever amount to something as a band may actually be worth something. I mean, who knows? Right? Um, so, <laughs> you know, there's, I think there's, there's so many benefits to going down the Kickstarter uh, route. Um, people get excited too by the, you know, the all or nothing, uh, you know, sort of putting yourself out on a limb aspect of it as well. It's like, well, are they going to make it? Are they not going to make it? Um, we've already raised half of the money we need, which we're absolutely thrilled about. Um, um, but yeah, I think people kind of get excited about that too. You know, they want they want to see you succeed. They want to get behind it. Um, so yeah, it's 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 great in that in that respect. I will add that Kickstarter is exactly what it says it is. It it kickstarts the project in terms of, uh, you know, being an investment for fans. And we do have a number of fans. And if they put something in knowing that they're going to like what they get out of it, that's a win-win for both sides. You know, we're able to go forward with the project and the fans end up with something of a level, at a level that uh, may not be possible in terms of quality that if they didn't, invest in us and help us get there giving back to our fans in a great way and making new fans and ending up with a you know top level quality product that we may not wouldn't be able to do otherwise i I have a little bit of experience in in this realm i mean we've funded two of the film projects that that we've produced uh or at least you know raised the seed money that we need for for two of our film projects with kickstarter campaigns and yeah, you guys have put together a really a really nice campaign. Um, it's really well organized. Uh, some awesome rewards there. I'm particularly stoked that you're going to be printing vinyl because that's something I was constantly nagging you about, Eric, when you released your first album that I couldn't get it on vinyl. Um, <laughs> that first album was pretty bootstrapped. 
<laughs> so we're we're taking it up a notch this time. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's clear, right? And I mean, I, it's just it's 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 definitely a well-run campaign, and I encourage folks to check it out. Um, there's some awesome rewards, and and it's definitely some good music. And you know, I, I, there's also something to be learned here, right? I mean, a lot of the folks who listen to the show are aspiring filmmakers, folks who are maybe considering you know, running a crowdsource campaign. And if that's something you're considering, I mean, the first thing you have to do is look at and sort of analyze lots and lots of crowdsource campaigns. Um, and the the campaign that you guys have put together is, I think, very well organized. And it's a good example of a campaign that, that um, I anticipate will be successful because um, you guys still have uh, a little over 20 days, right? And I think you're about halfway yeah. there. So yeah. you're on track for sure to, to reach that goal, which is awesome. So my, my last question for you is, how do you guys feel about the fact that your funky tunes are being used as the theme music for a podcast about conservation and wildlife? <laughs> I, I, I approve. <laughs> um, it's funny, I, I did uh, listen to, the, uh, to, to an example of the podcast and, you know, the, the intro and outro. And, uh, you know, I was surprised at just how well those particular tracks that you've picked seem to, you know, bookend the the show um so it's it's great you know I, I i i've done the same thing with my own brother he actually has two albums out on vinyl so there's a bit of competition there with me and him because i have zero <laughs> currently so uh, and i have used his uh some of his music underneath some videos that i've done before so uh yeah it's 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 a fun thing to do i i just appreciate that the people who listen to this podcast are certainly the type of fans that we want you know they're obviously informed and want to make a difference and you know you got to be a good person if you're if you're keeping in touch with matt and his his weekly podcast so we we appreciate that the music's getting out there to these people and hope that they can uh, we can make some new fans in in that way absolutely Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, guys, for coming to the show and just sharing a little bit of information about about this new album that you're recording and the Kickstarter campaign and and all that great stuff. You can check out the Humidors at humidfunk.com. There's links to videos and a bunch of music you can stream if you want to hear more. And there's definitely more to come. Well, thanks again, guys. And good luck on the, the rest of the campaign. Like I said, I mean, it looks like you guys are definitely on track to make it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Matt. All right, that was Ben Corey and Eric Podolsky from the band The Humidors. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. Today's show was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. Humidors.